Thank you, band. Thank you, choir. Hey, thanks, Pastor David, for that prayer. It was encouraging. And thank you, Craig, for leading us in worship. You know, I remember when I was a, growing up, I didn't enjoy listening to Christian music much. Or not Christian music, Christmas music much. I guess it would be the same. I was not a Christian. And, um, but since I had become a Christian, now I love singing Christmas songs. I love listening to the lyrics and the theology that's embedded in them and to sing it and praising God. I enjoy that very much. Now, some of you um, maybe have just been visiting for a few weeks or so and you're looking at me and you're saying, who is this guy up here? He's not the typical guy. Uh, and I'm, in fact, I'm not. And so I'm grateful to be up here this morning preaching. I'm thankful for Pastor Brian, the lead pastor. He opened up our, our Christmas series, Promises Made promises kept and pastor brian goodman uh many of you know him he was in the choir just a moment ago but he preached last week uh and so i'm kind of in the christmas lineup if you will and so i'm i'm grateful to be here this morning hey we're going to be studying isaiah chapter 11 we've been looking at chapter 7 and 8 and chapter 9 and this morning we're going to be looking at and studying Isaiah chapter 11, that's on uh, page 595, if you grab a a Bible there in the pew, page 595, studying 1 through 10. And if you'll remember, uh, Pastor Brian opened us up just a couple of weeks ago, and he really, he set the scene for us uh, in chapters uh, 7 and 8. You'll recall that the prophet Isaiah confronts the king of Judah whose name was Ahaz. He was the king around 735 or so BC. King Ahaz was a godless king. He was a foolish man. And ultimately, he was an idolater. And he reigned over a people who were immersed and had been immersed in idolatry. And you'll remember that Isaiah warned King Ahaz and he warned the people of Judah of God's coming wrath and his judgment. And throughout Isaiah's prophesying of God's coming judgment in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, he gives glimmers of hope along the way. And this morning, that's where we find ourselves. We're, we're getting a, a glimmer of hope from the prophet Isaiah, a glimmer of hope for the people of Judah, but it's also a glimmer of hope for those who are Christians. Because it reveals to us the king of glory. Many of us need this hope this morning, don't we? I look around the room and I see families who uh, have, are going through some sort of trial or struggling. Many of you, as Pastor David has just prayed, will experience Christmas, this Christmas, without, the loss or without a loved one that you have lost this year. And so I hope and my, I pray that you will find hope in our passage and in these verses this morning. Look with me at Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. 
but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Let me pray this morning. Father, we are grateful for the hope that we have in Christ. We are grateful for the season of Christmas where we can be more intentional to remember who he is and what he's done. Father, I pray for our hearts this morning as we engage in worshiping you, worshiping our King, worshiping Jesus as we study this passage of Scripture. Work in our hearts, make us more like him, and it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. The kings of Judah and the people of Judah were idolatrous. They had forgotten their God. They had, they had turned from him to worship other gods. And because of that, God was going to bring his wrath upon him. And that's exactly what he did. But before his judgment came, God gave his people a promise. He promised them a king. A king that would be like King David, Israel's most renowned king throughout their history. This king would be like David, except he would be better. In fact, this king that Isaiah prophesies about is supremely glorious. And that's what we're going to look at and discover this morning. So as we're studying, it's my goal to answer two questions. First, who is the king? And secondly, in what way is the king glorious? First, who is the king. Now, I believe this uh, is obvious, right? We're only here this morning because of one person, and that is Jesus. And so we know this, or at least we think we know this. The king is Jesus. But before we just say it and move on, why don't we shore up and make for certain, make certain that we know this as we study the scripture? Look at verse 1. Isaiah says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. A shoot from the stump. A branch from his roots. Now, in order to try to capture what Isaiah is saying here, I want you to, to get in your mind that pesky plant that you've 
tried to get rid of but have failed. Does anybody have a plant like this? I have a plant like this currently in my yard. It's in the front yard. My neighbors are here. They can attest to this. There's a a vine that kind of grows up the wall of my house. And no matter what I've done, I've tried to dig it out. I've tried to spray Roundup on it. But all my attempts are in vain. And if you're looking at me and you're saying, well, you probably need a younger man and a stronger man to do that. Well, I have one of those young guys living at my house. His name is Chad. And so I've sent Chad out there on several occasions. And he's attempted to dig up this root, to dig up this this tree that keeps coming up. And he has failed as well. So think about this root, this plant, this tree or shrub that you've tried to get rid of but you're unable to because you're not getting the root system. And every once in a while, you have a shoot that comes right, right up from that stump. So picture that in your mind as we go through some more of these verses here in Isaiah. Now remember, Isaiah has thus far predicted the total demise of all of Israel. And he has alluded to the destruction of Judah. All that would be left for a short while is the city on the hill, the city of Jerusalem. Look at uh, Isaiah 8. Look at chapter 8. Just flip over a couple pages. Chapter 8, verse 7. We'll see this. He says, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them, that is, the people of Israel, Samaria. He's bringing up against them the waters of the river, a mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and sweep, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land. What Isaiah is prophesying here is he's talking about the king of Assyria, north of Israel, would move his troops down into the country of Israel, the nation of Israel, and overthrow the king there and move and sweep all the way into Judah a little further south all the way up to the the city on the hill the city of Jerusalem he would conquer that land so Isaiah predicts a total destruction of Israel and Judah and though there will be total destruction to the people of Israel and Judah Isaiah makes clear that there would be a remnant preserved. God promised to preserve a small number of his people through this national tragedy. We see this in chapter 10. Look there at chapter 10 with me in verses 20 and 21. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One, of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. This remnant that will be preserved is the stump of Jesse. At one time, Israel was a mighty nation. It was a mighty tree, but because they sinned against God and because they transgressed his law, God has cut them off. He's cut them down. Isaiah prophesies that the people of Israel will become a stump. 
And that's exactly what happens from the 7th century to the 5th century. There's a timeline back here. You can see when those nations were overthrown. And so then we see here that the the remnant of Israel is the stump of Jesse. But we must ask, who is the shoot that will come forth from the stump? Who is the branch that comes from the withering remnant that will bear fruit? Well, I believe it is Jesus. Look at Acts chapter 13. These verses will be on the screen for you. Acts chapter 13, verses 21 through 23. The Holy Holy Spirit explains to us in these verses how God kept the promise that he made in Isaiah. Luke records in Acts 13, Then they, the people of Israel, asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when God removed King Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Jesus is the shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse. Jesus is the branch that will produce fruit. His ancestry, his lineage can be traced back to King David and back to David's father, Jesse. But let me me just note that, that Jesus is not just another king in the long line of kings of the nation of Israel. Isaiah is saying that he is coming from Jesse. He's saying that Jesus is going to be another David. He's going to be like David, but he's going to be better. Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. He is the shoot. He is the branch. He is a glorious king. Is he not? Is Jesus glorious? I believe he is. Now, the second question. In what way is our King Jesus glorious? I want to give you eight reasons. Now, don't be like, oh, eight reasons. Some of them will go quickly, okay? So we're going to just, we're going to barely touch some of them and other ones will dive a little deeper. I don't want to wear you out right here at the beginning. We'll get through this pretty quickly, I believe. And as we're studying these next several verses, I believe it will come even more obvious of why Isaiah, or why I'm using uh, the term king to describe Jesus from this passage. So, question, in what way is the king Jesus glorious? Reason number one, Jesus is the glorious king because he is filled with the spirit of the Lord. That's what Isaiah says in verse two. He says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah explains that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon Jesus as he ushers in his kingdom. And these three phrases that's used after that kind of explains it a, a bit further. One commentator says this, wisdom and understanding are judicial and governmental attributes. Counsel and might are the abilities to devise a right course of action and the personal prowess to see it through. 
Jesus, being filled with the Spirit of the Lord, will wisely and appropriately usher in his kingdom. The Spirit of the Lord will be upon him. Reason number two, Jesus is the glorious king because he delights in the fear of the Lord. That's what Isaiah says in verse 3, isn't it? He doesn't delight in man's opinion or some perceived reality. He delights in the fear of the Lord. We see this in the way that he executes justice, which is reason number three. Jesus is the glorious king because he executes impartial justice. Look what Isaiah says. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Jesus is the ultimate judge. He is all wise. He doesn't just judge or decide something based on human perception. He judges and decides based on righteousness and equity. He doesn't heed man's opinion. Rather, he fears the Lord and strives and does please his heavenly father. He is perfectly just and he executes justice with the power of his word. Jesus' word is powerful. Look what Isaiah says. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Jesus will usher in justice and righteousness. Reason number four. Jesus is the glorious king because he is clothed in righteousness and faithfulness. Verse 5, Isaiah says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Jesus is not a king that adorns himself in the riches of of the world. Rather, he is a king that robes himself in righteousness and faithfulness. This is in stark contrast to what we see of King Ahaz. And really, this is in stark contrast to any leader or ruler or king that has come throughout world history. Jesus is faithful and he is righteous. He is governed by his divine law, not by human opinion or cultural influences. So, so far we've looked at four reasons that Jesus is glorious, all of them kind of describing who he is, what he's like. Now we're going to look at how Isaiah paints this picture of Jesus' kingdom. But we must keep in mind that Jesus' kingdom is glorious, but it is only glorious because he is her king. In other words, the glory of Jesus' kingdom is completely and utterly dependent on him being there, on his presence. And we must also remember that a person will only enter the kingdom if they have paid homage to the king. We'll look at that more in just a moment. So the description of the kingdom, look at verse 5 or verse 6. 
Reason number five, Jesus is the glorious king because his kingdom is filled with peace. Verse six says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Now, we look at this description and we've got to think, this is not the world that we live in, is it? This isn't the world that we live in. We live in a world where animals tear each other apart. Just the other night, I'm on the couch, I'm reading a book, as I typically enjoy doing, and uh, Kyle uh, and his fiance Carly were over, and they were watching some documentary on uh, animals, and I wasn't paying attention. All I know is I looked up, and there was this leopard, and this leopard was on a branch, and all of a sudden, this leopard pounces off of the branch 20 feet down onto some sort of antelope or deer or something and just rips it apart. And I'm like, whoa, this is not the world we live in. Animals tear each other apart. In fact, we live in a world where humans tear tear each other apart. Do, Do we not? Murder, gossip even. Isaiah is describing something different here. And he's not just describing a new and improved on what used to be. He's describing a entirely new creation. The carnivores are, have become vegetarians, right? We see the, the lion eating the straw and the bear eating grass and children are leading uh, ferocious animals around like they're house pets. There's no death in this kingdom. There is only peace. Peace with God, peace with one another, and peace with God's creation. And there is only peace because this kingdom is filled with the knowledge of the king. That's reason number six. Jesus is the glorious king because his kingdom is filled with the knowledge of himself. That's what Isaiah says. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord just as the waters cover the sea. Now, some people might be tempted to think that that Jesus is a bit self-absorbed here, wanting everyone to know about him and to know him uh, personally and intimately and relationally. But let me ask a question. Is there any better knowledge a person can have? Is there any better knowledge a person can have than the knowledge of Jesus. You knowing him and he knowing you and there's perfect unity and harmony and fellowship within that relationship. There is no better knowledge to have than to know Jesus and for him to know you. To personally know Jesus in his forever enduring kingdom is to know salvation. To not know Jesus, to not pay homage to the king, is to not know salvation. We must realize that this kingdom that Jesus is ushering is in is accessible to everyone. 
but not everyone will enter. This kingdom are for those who have paid homage to the king. This kingdom is only for those who have heard about the king, who have submitted themselves to his loving rule and reign. They have submitted themselves to his kingship. This is who the kingdom is for. In a theology that teaches that a person can have eternal life without ever hearing the gospel or without ever repenting of sins or without ever trusting in Jesus, that is an utterly false and eternally destructive theology. Jesus, I believe, is quite clear on this and states rather plainly in John chapter 3, verses 16, or 16 through 18. You can look up on the screen. Look. I'm saying something here that, ha- that carries weight. And so I'm asking you to, to, to check in on me here. Check, check out what I'm saying. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him and then he goes on to clarify that statement a bit more he says whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already why is this person condemned already well John tells us doesn't he he says because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God If you have not submitted yourself to the kingship of Jesus, you do not stand to inherit his kingdom. Jesus says you are condemned right now just as you are. You are condemned to an eternal hell. It's kind of weighty, isn't it? But there's good news. I want to offer everyone good news. In his love the king is commanding you to do an about turn and submit yourself to his loving rule and reign over your life this is what we call repentance you're going one way you're saying I'm the king of my life I like to do what I want to do I'm going to do what I want to do I'm not submitting myself to anyone or anything And then you hear the gospel, you hear the king calling your name, saying, follow me, and you do an about turn, and you say, I am going to follow Jesus. I'm going to pick up my cross. I'm going to deny myself and follow him, no matter what that means for my life. That's repentance. That is the kingdom that Jesus preaches, and his kingdom is glorious. Now, This next point is perhaps uh, my favorite point of this morning. And it's my favorite point because I actually, I I learned something. And uh, as I was reading these verses, I come across, and I I was reading it and reading it and reading it and reading it and studying it and thinking through it. And I came across verse 10. I stood up and I said, you've got to be kidding me. It's looking me right in my eyes, right in my face. I don't, maybe I messed that up a bit, but I, I've read these verses before and it hit me and I said oh my goodness this is beautiful 
This is glorious. And I've got to tell something, somebody. I couldn't wait till this morning, right? So some of you who are my friends have gotten a spoiler alert already uh, this week. Notice what Isaiah says here in verse 10. He says, in that day, the root of Jesse. The root of Jesse. Now that fits well with our tree terminology used in verse 1, where Isaiah says that Jesus was the shoot that comes from the stump, indicating that Jesse came before Jesus, indicating that Jesus comes from Jesse. Now he's saying in verse 10 that Jesus is the root, indicating that Jesus was before Jesse, indicating that Jesse, in fact, comes from Jesus. Now, that's, that's mind-boggling, right? I'm, I was like, whoa! But we know this doctrine. This is the doctrine that stands front and center of the Christmas story. These two statements do not contradict one another. Jesus is, in fact, the root of Jesse, and he is the shoot of Jesse. We know that John teaches this explicitly in his gospel. Pastor David just read this before he prayed. He says, in the beginning was the word, referring to Jesus, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Talking about Jesus. It goes on in verse 14. The word, referring again to Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as, the, as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The teaching of the eternal son of God being born to the Virgin Mary with the name of Jesus is primary to the Christmas story. This is what we call the doctrine of incarnation. This doctrine, like I said, is quite clear in the Gospel of John. And it's just as clear in the book of Isaiah as we study carefully this text. Jesus is not just the shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse. He is the root that created the, the stump in the first place. He is the root that created the tree, the mighty nation of Israel, and he is the sustainer of the stump, the remnant of Israel. This is a glorious doctrine, is it not? A glorious king is who we worship. Reason number eight, Jesus is the glorious king because his resting place is glorious. Look at what Isaiah says at the last part of verse 10. He shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. God made a promise to the people of Judah 2,700 years ago that a glorious king would come. He would reign in righteousness and establish a kingdom of peace. 700 years later, a baby was born in Bethlehem. His name was Jesus. He was the eternal son of God in 
the flesh. He was nailed to a cross where he hung suspended between holy God and sinful humanity. And he was buried there in Joseph's tomb. Was this the king that Isaiah prophesied about? Was this the king that God promised would give glorious rest? And you might think, that doesn't sound very glorious to me. You might think, why would I pay homage to this king? Why would I submit myself to his loving rule and reign? Now that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Really, it's the eternal question. You see, Jesus didn't stay in the tomb for it could not contain his glory. And his crucifixion was unlike any other in that it atoned for sins. In that manger where he lay, that wasn't like any old manger. For it held the king of glory. It held Emmanuel. 2,000 years ago, King Jesus ushered in his kingdom through his death and resurrection. And before he died, he made a promise. He made a promise that his resting place would indeed be glorious. His resting place is not just for the people of Judah. It's not just for the people of Israel. When the king came from his throne down to his manger and ultimately to the cross, he paved the way of salvation for all the peoples of the earth, for all nations, for every tongue and tribe. His salvation is for everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And whoever calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. They will be saved from the wrath of God and they will enter into the glorious rest of the glorious king for all of eternity. The kingdom has been ushered in, but it's not yet complete, is it? We don't live in the the world that Isaiah describes just a few verses back. It will only be complete when the king returns. And if you're a Christian this morning, you long for that day. Does anybody long for that day? I long for that day. Rick's the only one that longs for that day? Man. Man. I long for that day. If you're not Christian, though, this is not a day you long for. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 25, talking about his return, starting in verse 31. He says, when the Son of Man, Jesus, so Jesus is talking about himself here, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. 
Now that kind of sums up our study of the text. And most often a preacher, pastor at this time will give you some sort of application where it's like, okay, now you know this, go work it out. Do something, uh, get your hands dirty, get your feet busy and work and serve the Lord. My encouragement this morning to you is not that. My encouragement to you this morning is to sit still. Sit still sometime over this next week. Sit still with your family. Sit still personally, individually, and consider this promise that Jesus makes. Consider Jesus. Consider his birth. Consider his death. Consider his resurrection. Consider his return. Consider his kingdom to come in all its glory. And ask God to help you behold the king. Now to conclude our time this morning, you guys can come on up, the band, to conclude our time this morning, I want to read some lyrics from a song that was penned in 15th century Germany. Quite an old song, right? Not the 50s, way further back than the 50s, right? I'm talking about almost 600 years ago. Now they have obviously uh, been uh, translated and recently they've been rearranged with a new title. And I'll encourage you to listen to this. This title is, is There Blooms a Rose in Bethlehem. I'm going to read the lyrics for us this morning to, and kind of engage your mind, engage your heart, and think about how you might submit yourself to the king. It goes like this. There blooms a rose in Bethlehem from tender stem hath sprung. Of Jesse's line, this flower grows as men of old have sung. Isaiah told us long ago about this rose we'd find. In virgin arms we shall behold the Savior of mankind. The glories of the heavens surrounded shepherds bright. The angels sang, a sign was shown, the Christ was born at night. What mystery they came upon, the signs the heralds laud. In manger slept the Holy One in flesh the son of God this flower and bloom a scent so sweet that greet us in the air it has dispelled with hopefulness the sting of death's despair foretold this rose was born to die but would not see decay so those who place their faith in him shall blossom from the grace amen let's stand and sing praise the king